Welcome to the FEG Insight Bridge. This is Greg Dowling, Head of Research and CIO at FEG. This show spans global markets and institutional investments through conversations with some of the world's leading investment, economic, and philanthropic minds to provide insight on how institutional investors can survive and even thrive in the world of markets and finance. Today on the FEG Insight Bridge, we hear directly from Liz Ann Saunders, Charles Schwab's Chief Investment Strategist. Because of her no-nonsense, easy-to-understand, and straightforward talk on markets and economics, it is not hard to understand why she is a frequent media guest on CNBC, Bloomberg TV, Fox Business, The Wall Street Journal, and Barron's. She has also been named to Smart Money's Power 30, the best strategist of the year by Kiplinger, and recently to Barron's 100 Most Influential Women in Finance list. On today's podcast, you will hear about her upbringing, the rise of the retail investor, market valuations, the Fed, how we can get more young women into the investment industry, and even what her favorite French fries are. All right, big FEG welcome to Liz Ann Saunders. Thanks for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Greg. Before we talk current markets, wanted to get a little bit into your background. So if I understand correctly, you were the first in your family to finish college and you go from there to being this market maven. So take us from point A to point B. How did you get interested in investing and how were you on TV all the time? Investing, I'd say, was not a, a predetermined path in my own head. I effectively had a double major in political science and economics in college. And one of the first economics classes I took required daily reading of the Wall Street Journal, which is now one of my Bibles, but uh, at the time wasn't terribly interesting. And I got a hint from a college friend's father who had been an avid watcher of the great show Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser and said, if you ever just want a quick summary of what happened during the week and you didn't get a chance to pour through the papers, watch that show on Friday night. So I would watch it every once in a while. And I found that I was fascinated with a lot of what was discussed on that show. When I graduated undergrad, I still had no idea what I wanted to do other than knowing I wanted to work and live in New York City. I was a Brooklyn-born girl. My parents were first-generation Americans from Norway. They were born and raised in Brooklyn. So I had a New York background. I wanted to be in New York City, interviewed across a spectrum of industries, but something connected at this company's WIG avatar. I did research on the founders, including Marty Zweig, just a maven himself in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He was actually part of Wall Street Week. Kind of grew up in the business, went to graduate school at night. And toward the mid to late 90s was when the TV stuff started. I was invited to be on a call-in show on CNBC, and I was a nervous wreck. And the day after that, I got a call from the producer of Wall Street Week asking me to come on as a guest. And then I became a regular panelist, and it sort of took off from there. I left Swag Avatar in 99, joined U.S. Trust, and less than 10 months later, Schwab acquired U.S. Trust. And I was fairly quickly, as I like to say, adopted by the parent company, uh, where I've been ever since. <laughs> so that's 35 years in uh, in three minutes. <laughs> that's pretty good. So you mentioned Marty's wag, and you obviously rubbed shoulders with Charles Schwab himself. Maybe um, things you've learned from each of them, or, and maybe other mentors along the way. Marty was generically considered a market timer. 
but not from a trading perspective. He started one of the first ever hedge funds, Wide Domena Partners, which still exists, wrote the best-selling newsletter of all time, this Wide Forecast, wrote several best-selling books. And he took very much a macro approach to gauging where we were in, in the market cycle, looking at monetary policy. He coined the phrase, don't fight the Fed. He created the put-call ratio. So a big believer in, in sentiment and the behavioral side and how that comes into play at major market inflection points. He was really famous for literally calling the crash the Friday night before the crash and laid out exactly what would happen. And the happened. crash of 87. Crash of 87, yes. It was really quite remarkable. And you can find it on YouTube. It's a fascinating few-minute interview to watch because of how prescient it was. And then, frankly, when I joined the show Wall Street Week, Lou Rukeyser became a bit of a mentor. In fact, one of the first things he ever said to me that has just stuck with me from that point, he asked whether my parents were financial people. I said, no, far from it. He said, okay, when you come out here in 10 minutes to do the interview with me, get them to understand what you're talking about. And I took that to heart and it's always in the back of my mind anytime I speak or write. And then Chuck Schwab, of course, they happen to be men. And I've had lovely women in my life that have been inspirational, not least being my mom. But I've just had exposure to these incredible icons. I also had the great pleasure for the first time of playing golf with Chuck uh, two days ago, which was quite nerve wracking, at least the first couple of holes, because he is a phenomenal golfer. But we ended up having an absolute blast. So he's really just a prince among men to, uh, to work for. So you are one of the higher profile investment strategists out there, which also makes you one of the highest profile female strategist out there. So uh, you mentioned all these men in your life. So for my high school daughter, who's very interested in the market, what advice would you have for her and other young women out there who want to get in the industry? First of all, I think being a woman in the broader industry of financial services, however you define it, even a woman on Wall Street, as we say generically, which typically doesn't just refer to the street of Wall Street in Manhattan, but more of the traditional world of investment banking firms. I've always thought being a woman was an advantage, even back in 1986 when I started in the business, which was truly an era biased by men. And there was quite a bit of hyperbole and exaggeration, but the movie Wall Street, the original one with Michael Douglas, and Charlie Sheen, was that era. And I, I think, again, with some exaggeration, but it did to some degree depict what Wall Street was then. I think being a woman, number one, it, it's a differentiator, certainly back when I started 35 years ago, and especially today. And it's not just because firms are really focused on making sure there's diversity across genders, uh, across race, but I think that women bring something into the world of financial services that, and this is generalizing, that maybe give us a little bit of an edge, less of a gambling mentality, maybe a little bit more intuition. Also, the fact that more than half the wealth in the United States is controlled by women. And that is going to be reflected in the makeup of financial services broadly. And that more than half is growing to probably two-thirds within the next couple of decades. So I think the opportunities have never been greater women. And the last thing I'd say is I can't tell you how many young people say, boy, I'd love to do something like you do, but I was never good at math. And I think I was never good at math either. I use very little math in what I do. If anything, a psychology degree probably is more relevant to the kind of work I do than a math degree or a statistics degree. <laughs> 
Uh, I love that. Great advice. All right, well, let's switch gear and actually talk about the markets, which you spend all of your waking hours doing. As we exit the summer doldrums and we get here into the fall season, what is your view on the economy? The early cycle, mid-cycle, late cycle, where are we? You know, I think where we are in the cycle, to, to me, is yet to be decided, because although we have the official dating of the pandemic recession by the NBER as having only been two months, so starting in February, ending in April, what we really don't know and probably won't for a while is whether that truly started a brand new cycle or whether we'll look back and see that as a break in an ongoing cycle. And that would help define, if we knew the answer to that, where we are in this cycle, whatever it is, whether it's late cycle. I would say there are a lot of facets of where we are that suggest later in the cycle, not least being that we're moving away from very easy monetary policy to something resembling tighter monetary policy. It's not going to be a need for the Fed to step in dramatically and start ramping up interest rates. Obviously, they'll start with the balance sheet. But that would suggest we're later in the cycle. The peak in earnings growth rate, that is very much in the rearview mirror. I think second quarter was the peak in the earnings growth rate and possibly the peak in the growth rate for the economy. As it relates to COVID and the Delta variant, there's no question it's causing some hiccups in the data, especially in states where the variant has seen its greatest surge. So you've seen a rollover in the kind of statistics that I think are relevant in this unique period of time, like PSA traveler throughput and restaurant reservations and box office receipts and other mobility type data. And that's not sinking significantly at the national level, but definitely in those areas. We're not going to go full into lockdown mode, at least not in my opinion, we're not going to. But that doesn't mean human beings won't make decisions about their own activities, given what's happening with the, the virus. But even before the emergence of the Delta variant, our view is that we were in the midst of a shift in the economy away from the goods side of the economy being the big driver. And that's what we saw even during the worst part of the pandemic. High demand for goods, automobiles, housing, everything housing related, electronics. And that demand was met. And then when we opened the economy back up, the demand shifted to services. And so we've already seen a bit of a faltering in some of the goods related economic data. The rub, of course, is that we were going to see an offset because of the surge in services demand, but that's where the Delta variant comes in and maybe at least knocks a level off of that. So I don't think we're sinking like a stone, but I think the best is behind us in terms of the growth rate. So with that said, there's been a lot of rotation. So during the pandemic, we had the work from home surge and all those stocks soared. And then we got the vaccines out. We had the reopening trade. And so all of those, a lot of the cyclicals, a lot of financials, they rallied. They've kind of softened a little bit with Mm -hmm. the Delta variant. Mm -hmm. So when we think about these rotations going on, value, growth, where should investors be right now? I'm glad you asked that question because I think looking under the surface of where leadership has been within, say, an index like the S&P 500 or even looking more broadly at other indexes, including you know NASDAQ and small caps, that has shown the connectivity between the market and what's going on in the economy, what's going on with the pandemic. If you simply look at the closing price on any day, week or month of the S&P, it's confounding to a lot of people because we just sort of continually march to new highs when we have much more volatility in the in the data and the virus. But just peeling one layer of the onion back, 
and looking at those rotational phases, the highly concentrated leadership of just the big five for the first five and a half, six months of the move off the March bottom. And then you had that move, as you said, into cyclicals and value, the reopening, at least initially was driven by the vaccine. Then you had the actual potential for reopening. You went into the lower quality phase, which often happens when you start pricing in a really significant pickup in growth, because that's where the leverage is greatest. The companies that have no earnings, that have weaker balance sheets, that's where in relative terms, you get the bigger pop. Now I think we're in more of a traditionally defensive market. So a year ago, defensives were the big five. They were the the Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, the the ecosystem in which we were all living when we couldn't live in any other ecosystem because everything was shut down. Lately, the move into defensives has been in those more typical defensives utilities and consumer staples. And that's natural given the market pricing in a rolling over in the growth rate, not into recession, but a less robust pace of growth. But under the surface, one additional layer deep in the onion, there's a quality theme that has developed, regardless of whether you're looking in value indices or growth indices. So if you look at a variety of value factors, whether it's price to book, price to sales, free cash flow yield, it's the higher quality oriented ones, free cash flow yield being an example. Stocks that screen well on that are doing better than those that screen on maybe more traditional value factors. Even if you look in the growthier parts of the market, earnings revisions, actual realized growth, those factors are outperforming historical growth. So there's a quality theme to what's working right now. And that's what I would say investors should focus on is overarching quality. Doesn't quality tend to work kind of mid-cycle? Does that kind of say we're more mid-cycle than light cycle? Well, it depends on how you define quality. What I think is unique about this period of time is just how big a driver of performance factors are. And factors should be differentiated from style indexes or even sectors. An example is we have an underperform rating on utilities right now. Utilities dominate the value indexes. They practically don't exist in the growth indexes, whether it's S&P growth, Russell 1000 growth, Russell 2000 growth. They live in the value indexes, but they're really expensive. That doesn't mean they're growth stocks. It just means they're expensive value stocks. So to just generically say, I like value here. Well, what do you mean? Do you like the factor of value or you say, I like value, just you know, put blinders on and buy one of the value indexes? And if that's your view, huge differences between, say, Russell 1000 value and Russell 2000 value, huge, including financials being almost 30% of small cap value. So you better have a call on financials if you're going to just say value or even small cap value. So I just think There needs to be a more nuanced conversation. And more than maybe any other time, factor leadership is dominating anything at the style level and anything at the sector level. So I I wouldn't worry about picking the right sector or picking growth versus value. Focus on the individual factors with an overarching theme of quality. No, I think that's a great point. We need to get beyond labels. Even someone who's value, someone might look at price to books, someone might like price to sales, price to earnings. You can find value in growth indexes. In 2002, in October of 2002, if you were a deep value investor, you wanted to go into the beaten down tech stocks, the 
the the real companies, not the you know pets.com nonsensical stuff from 99, 2000. But if you were a deep value investor, that's what you wanted to buy. You didn't want to buy the utilities because they were right. in the value. You found value in the stocks that were in the growth indexes. Microsoft fell down to those levels. You could have bought it as a value. That's right. Even if it wasn't moved into the value indexes, that's where value was. That's a great point. We often say like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to diversify my portfolios and and I'm going to put this label and that factor here. And you probably need to go one step further and kind of understand how people are doing it. So another thing maybe that might be helpful for investors out there in the fall, as we always do every fall, there's a pretty busy calendar. We've got an infrastructure bill. We have a debt ceiling. We have the Fed. We have a bunch of things we don't even know about yet. So what are the one or two things, maybe three things that investors should really be focused on and watching this fall? Not to mention just the seasonality of September being the worst month of the year historically. A lot of people think October is because of some pretty high profile, horrific things that have happened in October, as we already talked about the crash of 87. And a lot of what happened in 2008 was concentrated in October. But there is an amazing tendency for just things to come out of the blue that sort of shock the system in that September, October time period. That doesn't mean you should brace for something happening and try to adjust a portfolio in anticipation of that, but just be mindful that there are some risks out there. I think at this stage in the cycle, there are monetary policy risks. There's the risk that inflation is not quite transitory and the Fed is then viewed as getting behind the curve. The bond vigilantes come back out of the woodwork. The opposite could be the case. The Fed could kind of plow ahead with tapering plans and starting to discuss raising interest rates. And if the economy is actually really rolling over here, then the Fed might be in the process of making a monetary policy mistake, tightening too fast, too quickly. So there's always the Fed issue that comes into play. Earnings have dramatically beaten expectations every quarter since the pandemic erupted. It could be the case that the bar is still set low in the third quarter, but that's not going to last in perpetuity. So I think that's later in the cycle. That's more of an October story when earnings for the third quarter start to get reported. And then we have to keep COVID in the mix as a potential risk factor, either the Delta variant or another variant, vaccine resistancy on the part of a variant. Those would be top of mind. I think the policy stuff out of Washington We think that process is going to take maybe a a little bit longer, that this isn't really a September, October story where everything's going to be ink on paper on an actual bill. We think the sausage making to get anything close to the three and a half trillion dollar package is going to take a while and be pretty bumpy road. For now, that package is not a bill. It's not even written in legislative language. So we have a few steps to go in that process before we have to start to think about, okay, where are taxes going? What does that mean for me? We also don't think that there's a high likelihood of retroactivity. It's probably more of a 2022 story. At one point, you're to point to the president's advisory panel on federal tax reform. 16 years ago, that's 2005. Yes, yes. Yeah, we got to see how the sausage was yes, made yes. and how opinions are shared. You made a comment you think it's going to not be retroactive. So maybe just a little bit more on just taxes and capital gains. And then I also want to ask you, 
If you were in charge, where should they be? What's the right levels? You know, I'd love taxes to be zero, but that's, <laughs> but that's unrealistic. So <laughs> I, I'd vote for you if you ran. I mean, I actually personally believe in dramatically simplifying the tax code, whether it's, you know, flat tax. Uh, I think it's the complication that has complicated things more so than any particular level being too high or too low. And I think we have to stop trying to engineer social policy via the tax code. I think the tax code should be a function of raising revenue in order to fund the government for what it needs to do. But I'll get off my soapbox on that piece of it. My colleague, Mike Townsend, who's our man in Washington, this is what he lives, eats and breathes every day. And we spend a lot of time discussing this now. And it is his very seasoned view that believes that retroactivity is not 0% chance, but maybe less likely than what is being discussed right now. It's just uncommon for tax hikes to be retroactive, more common for tax cuts to be retroactive. Our view is that the capital gains tax is not going up anywhere near to the 43% or so, which is all in what's in the initial proposal, maybe 28 at the top end. Same with the corporate tax rate. Maybe it goes up to about uh, 25. What's interesting is if you look at market behavior around capital gains tax increases historically, there's no common theme, nor is there any significant weakness. And I've had people come back at me in this and, and say, well, you're, I'm guessing you're just looking at the point once cap gains tax take effect, a hike takes effect looking forward. We know it's coming. So you've got to look at the market in the lead in which I always say, well, of course I have. And if you look at the year lead in, if the six months lead in, the six months after, a year after, a one year span around, a two year span around, you do see some churn and some weakness in stocks that have had big upside appreciation because of selling in anticipation of, but then you tend to see a pickup in other names in the aftermath of the passage of a tax hike. So the net is that it sort of kind of washes itself out, not to mention the fact that there are always other things going on in the market than just where tax rates are. I don't worry so much about a stock market calamity in a broad sense, but there are definitely things that investors are going to have to do from a planning perspective as we approach the date that it takes into effect. And there's no cookie cutter answer to what do you do? That's a function of the makeup of your portfolio and what types of stocks you own and, and your tax bracket, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It'll be interesting, right? Because you have these counterbalances where you're going to have a lot of fiscal going into the economy. Monetary is going to be maybe tightening and you might have higher taxes. And, and hopefully the economy is re-emerging globally, not just here in the States. Right. You have a hard job. The one thing I'd say about the fiscal stimulus associated with whatever passes in terms of infrastructure is it's very different than the fiscal stimulus of the past year. It is not immediate direct checks into the hands of households. It's not immediate direct relief for businesses. It's spread out over a decade-long period of time. So we just have to think of it a bit differently than what fiscal stimulus has looked like in the past year. And tax hikes are immediate. Tax hikes are immediate, yes. And that's phased in over eight to 10 years. That's the difference. So let's talk about infrastructure, both physical and human. And we don't know exactly on the human side how much is going to go through or what form that's going to take yet. Uh, we'll have a better sense later this fall. Who does that help? I mean, especially on the physical side, does that help small caps versus large caps? Does it have any impact at all that investors should be aware of? I think it is 
very treacherous to trade or invest at the stock level, at the sector level, at the cap level, based on certainly prospective policy, let alone policy that we know is going to be or can assume is going to be enacted. And it goes back to there are so many other forces that come into play, not least being a lot of anticipatory trading in advance of something happening. And some examples I give about that is, you know, in 2016, when Trump was elected, and it was obviously a bit of a surprise. So there was not months of anticipation. And then there was the immediacy of talking about cutting the corporate tax rate, uh, more of an embracing of traditional energy and less regulations specific to certainly sectors like financials. The play, the bet would have been energy will do well, traditional energy, financials. So many things were the complete opposite of what the bets would have seemed to be obvious at the start of that four years. And conversely, you know, in the beginning of the Biden administration, energy was actually the best performing sector. So just be really careful about saying, oh, infrastructure, it's going to be about building bridges and roads and who are the biggest players. Let's load up on that as if that's going to be kind of a permanent leadership area. It's never as easy as that. I happen to believe, bigger picture, that we are moving into an environment where the U.S. economy is going to be more investment driven and less discretionary consumption driven. Right now, consumer spending is more than 70% of GDP. I think that's going to start to give way, not collapse, but start to give way to the investment side of the economy. Residential investment has already been fairly strong, but I think non-residential investment which is business capex, especially in high tech areas. And then the government spending piece of it on infrastructure will be additive to that investment piece of the economy. But it's not just infrastructure, it's education, it's healthcare. I think that's really a game changer because I think that's a healthier economy that's growing based on longer term investment and not solely on short term discretionary consumption. Many people have said over the years, if you had a copy of tomorrow's Wall Street Journal, you probably still couldn't make any money. <laughs> very true. Very true. It's very it is hard, hard to make short-term gains. It is hard. As we talk about all this stuff, we probably need to talk about valuations. And we had Jeremy Grantham on this podcast not too long ago. He had some serious concerns about sure. valuations and where we're at. So where are you in terms of equity valuations? So it depends on what metric you're talking about. I keep an ongoing tally of about a dozen valuation metrics and we have them heat map coded. So if they're on the very expensive end of the spectrum, it's in the red zone, the cheap end of the spectrum, it's in the green zone. And I always say that at any point in time, I could find the biggest bear in the room and the biggest bull in the room and probably almost all the time be able to hand each one of them a valuation metric that they can put on a sign and hold up and say, see, the market's cheap or see, the market's expensive. So metrics like Schiller's cyclically adjusted PE, a pure 10-year look back, the only time we've been more expensive in the history of that data is circa 2000. The so-called Buffett model, total market cap of the entire stock market divided by GNP, that's off the charts. But then you've got equity risk premiums relative to either treasuries or relative to even corporate bond yields. And those suggest that the stock market is actually on the less expensive end of the spectrum. There used to be another yield-oriented valuation indicator, the real earnings yield, which is the inverse of the P-E ratio, but adjusted for inflation. That had been on the list of indicators that suggested the market was pretty cheap until we got the inflation spike that we did. 
So now we're subtracting a bigger number, and that took the real earnings yield into pretty deep negative territory. But let's talk about your traditional P.E. ratio. Trailing still looks fairly rich because we still have backward weak earnings from the pandemic era. The forward P.E. just in the last six months has come from about 27 down to 21 because of the power of the denominator, the massive surge in the E. And that's, by the way, a really important differentiator versus what was going on into the peak in 2000. When we hit a forward P.E. of 27, that was driven by prices rising faster than earnings. Earnings were rising. It's just prices were rising faster than earnings. And earnings were actually about to peak. The spike to 27 this time came because of the collapse in earnings last year, but it was a very short-lived collapse, and we've been on this massive acceleration since then. So we have the E doing much more of the heavy lifting and has had the effect of bringing the forward PE down. I think it really depends on what metric you're looking at, but maybe most important, valuation shouldn't be seen as a market timing tool. It doesn't tell you anything about what the stock market's going to do in the next year. There's no correlation at all. Looking out 10 years, yes, big difference. It's also a sentiment indicator or maybe an indicator of sentiment. We think of valuation as sort of this fundamental thing because there's quantifiable components. But there are times like 2000 where investors were willing to pay nosebleed valuations for stocks that had no earnings, had no prospects for earnings. That was the sentiment environment we were in. And then when you're in an environment like early 09, you can't give away stocks. So a lot of it has to do with sentiment. I often come back to sentiment because I think it's the biggest driver of market cycles, more so than all the fundamentals that we tend to talk about. So stocks are expensive, but there's no flashing red lights right now. Yeah, I just don't think we have a valuation bubble in the major averages. I think we have a bunch of micro bubbles. And I've used that term for a few years now. And many of them this year have been popped or pricked. Now, that doesn't mean they don't reflate again, but... These like meme stocks, SPACs. Yeah, meme stocks, SPACs, crypto, zombie companies, bankruptcy stocks. We've had 30, 40, 50% drawdowns in these areas. And that's another big difference versus the late 90s is the speculative froth that has been rampant this year has largely been in these non-traditional pockets of the market. There's been less of that froth in the benchmark indexes. That's where you're seeing some of the carnage throughout the course of this year is outside of the traditional indexes. Let's go there because one part of you're putting on your Charles Schwab hat the number of new participants that sort of newly minted day traders who, yep. who are signing up for Schwab accounts or Robinhood accounts or whatever accounts they might be signing up for is probably a good thing. Like people are getting back into the market. Absolutely. But there's some goofiness that's going on as well. So what's the sort of the impact of these new day traders? Even before the pandemic, we had been seeing a significant increase in the percentage of new accounts that were opened, brokerage accounts that were opened that skewed younger in terms of demographics. Now, admittedly, a firm like ours tends to attract younger people that are more investment oriented, not necessarily, you know, following the Wall Street bets forum on Reddit and looking for the get rich quick meme stock trade. So the cohort is young investors getting into the market for the first time. That's a very broad brush. And you really have to differentiate from the true newly minted day traders that have been the big players in the the meme stocks and some of these other areas versus younger investors that I think realize that they have to take ownership of their financial future. I think there's skepticism about maybe the systems and, and backstops that were in place in our generation, whether it's you know traditional pension plans not existing and concerns about whether social 
social security is going to be there for them. So I think there are these bigger shifts that have attracted the attention of younger investors. And then, of course, you have what the pandemic fueled, you know, sports betting and being home and having more free time. I think Schwab may have had something to do with commissions going to zero. I seem to recall we may have been there and and things like fractional shares and just further democratization, all of which are good things. That doesn't mean there isn't probably going to be some pain for the crowd that is approaching the market as a get rich quick or stick it to the man or greater fool theory of I'm just going to buy something in the hope that the next person that buys it pays a higher price. And I just think that there's a wide chasm in terms of that group of traders to investors. The hope is that we can be part of the process of education and transitioning some of these newly minted short-term get rich quick day traders into successful long-term investors, but it's probably not going to be without some pain along the way. What type of education do you need to provide? I remember the tech bubble and remember seeing people like, I can't believe these people are actually working. I'm just day trading my accounts. You, you mentioned uh, pets.com and I'm making money on this.com and that.com. When that bubble broke, a lot of those people just went to eat. They just stopped doing it. They lost right. all their money. So when AMC goes back to zero or whatever, whatever the right valuation is, maybe it's north of zero. Are we going to lose all of these people that we brought into the system? So how do we get them on the right track? I, I hope not. In fact, what's interesting about the meme stocks as an example recently is this latest surge back up in some of these names has actually not been driven by retail traders. It's been driven by institutions, long, short hedge funds, high frequency traders that are sort of in on the game of what can happen in the very short term with momentum. And then they've got the algorithms to kind of play it in the short term. So that's already potential good news that we're not seeing the same kind of froth in obviously low quality names like that. In fact, I just looked at the top 10 list of stock that are being mentioned on Reddit. And in January and February, it was all GameStop and AMC and BlackBerry and Clover Health and all those classic beam stocks. Now it's Tesla and Microsoft and Apple and NVIDIA and Amazon. I think it's too soon to say, look, they've already shifted toward investing in But maybe it's a sign. That doesn't mean, though, that there still can't be an implosion, but maybe it will hurt the high frequency traders more than newly minted day traders. But, you know, our mission has always been about financial literacy and education. And our website has always been attuned to that. And we have a whole money wise section with education tools and our disclosures to the annoyance of many people, sometimes even internally, are long and wide and deep and detailed. And because we think it's important that people know what they're doing. But that's good. And you guys certainly provide a ton of resources. And I do hope you're right, because it'd be great to keep these folks still invested, diversify and do it for the long run. Maybe a little inside baseball here. So you mentioned the Wall Street Journal as being your Bible early on. What can people read or watch or listen to outside of just Charles Schwab these days? I literally, or I should say figuratively, drink from a fire hose of information every single day. It's through a variety of channels. 
There's the newspaper stuff. And I used to be old school with the physical newspapers in my hand, but now it's all online. And every day I'm not fully reading, but I'm looking at Financial Times, Washington Post, New York Times, obviously the Wall Street Journal. There are the website news feeds of MarketWatch and Yahoo Finance and Street.com and all of those. I get a ton of research, admittedly expensive research providers that we are subscribers to, the likes of Ned Davis Research and BCA and GavePal and Luthold and Strategus and ISI and Capital Economics, the list goes on and on and on. But I will say there's a really efficient way to get reams of information, in many cases from people who you typically wouldn't have access to via Twitter. And I have a love-hate relationship with, with Twitter. I love the access to information. I love that somebody like a Ray Dalio will go on Twitter, post something where in the past you had to have seven gazillion dollars in Bridgewater to have any idea what was he was thinking or saying. And so some of the most brilliant minds kind of provide their research via Twitter in one form or another. It's just a great access point for information if you can do what I do, which is weed out the noise and the vitriol and the bullying. I don't engage in any of that. And if somebody decides they want to try to engage me, I've gotten really quick with the block button. Um, (laughs) Really quick. You have to. You have to. But I always say when people say, how do I see what you're looking at? See who I'm following on Twitter. You know, there's a celebrity or two every once in a while and other folks that I follow that are outside. But you can see all the various resources that I follow. And it's it's just an efficient way to get a lot of really good information. That's some great advice. We certainly have The Economist and Financial Times and Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, but we also have some of those providers too. And they're excellent. Yeah. Bloomberg to me is, I think, one of the best sources of information. I mean, I'm a terminal user, but the news, the information, I think the reporters are brilliant. The global nature of it, how far it spans beyond just what's going on in financial markets on a day-to-day basis. That I would almost say is more of my today go-to. If I had to kind of pick one source and that was the only source I could have, I'd be hard-pressed not to pick Bloomberg. Those are all great suggestions. And a lot of them, you know, like Yahoo Finance, these are free. So, I mean, I think in the information age, we just have so much information coming our way. It's almost important to figure out kind of how to curate that information to to have the right information. Those are some great suggestions. And the right information for you. Uh, The right information for me may be very different than the right information for somebody else, but that just takes some time to figure out. So you're a little different than other strategists. You're not on CNBC going, Tesla, buy right now. You're not saying the S&P 500, the level as as of Jan 1 is going to be this. The year-end price target nonsense. It's complete nonsense. I just don't understand the value of it. And I'm thrilled that all the way up to Chuck, no one has ever said to me, hey, Lizanne, we, we should start doing this, the year-end price target, which every other strategist does. And that'll be probably the point where I say, and it's time for me to retire. Why don't you do that if everybody else is doing it? Well, what's the point? I think the point is just so they can pat themselves on the back or the media can either pat them on the back or give them a hard time for not having nailed the price target. The price targets change constantly throughout the year. I have no idea where the S&P 500 is going to close at 4 p.m. on December 31st. I don't even know if December 31st is a weekday, meaning that the market's even open. I don't know where the market's going to close today at four o'clock. To be a successful investor, it's not what you know about something silly like that. It's what you do. 
not what you know about the future. I just don't see the value, especially at Schwab. We have all individual investors for the most part. I just don't see the value in the, in something like the year-end price target. Someone said you important to give a, a level, just not a date. So you can always go back some point in time, go, look, I was right. It's been right. 10 years. <laughs> and you don't really have a call on stocks. Well, we do have tactical recommendations where we will be overweight one area, say, of the equity market versus others or underweight. We're generally neutral right now to the whole overarching global equities, but we have a bias right now to develop international equities. So that was a shift we made at the beginning of this year. Is not just spouting the benefits of diversification across asset classes and not having all your eggs in just the U.S. basket, but actually saying we think that as this kind of new cycle is unfolding, you came out of a recession, you came out of a bear market, that tends to bring on shifts in broad leadership. And we just felt like opportunities were developed international. So yes, we will make subtle tactical shifts, but they're in the context of strategic asset allocation, which we think is of paramount importance, which is why when we talk about areas we like or don't, we're not expressing it in percentage terms. A question that drives me crazy that I often get from the media, well, you know, what percentage of stocks are you telling your investors to have in their portfolio? Well, who's the investor? Right. Is it a 22-year-old that just inherited $10 million and they don't need the money and they go bungee jumping on the weekends and <laughs> they're risk takers and they're not going to freak out at the first 10% drop in their portfolio? Or is the investor 75 years old, has a nest egg, needs to live on the income and can't afford to lose any of the principal? So the percentages that I or somebody else might give them are entirely different, even with a singular view on what we think the attractiveness of the equity market is. I totally agree. I don't see you on TV going, you know what, at this level, double down on Amazon. Just that is not what you do. It's different than other strategists, right? I don't cover any individual stocks. I'm purely big picture, top down. I personally directly only own one stock and the symbol is SCHW and you can look it up, maybe glean why I own it (laughs) because I'm partly paid in it. No, that's great. We'll kind of finish on a few fun questions here. You know, maybe not fun, but maybe just informative. What's your favorite book on investing? Reminiscences of a Stock Operator by Edwin Lefebvre. So that's a Jesse Livermore. Yep. That was based off of Jesse Livermore, written in the first person, set in the 1920s. And I think does a better job of explaining in an interesting way what happens when sentiment gets to an extreme in one direction or another. So that's the one I always recommend, especially if people are starting out in the business. That was given to me day one in 1986 by Marty Zweig. In fact, I think the copy that I have up here, which is to the right of the ukulele, that's the copy I got 35 years ago. For uh, podcast listeners, many of us in this work from home. And so we see into her office and she's got all these books and she's got a ukulele and family pictures. I've got a fire department helmet from September 11th, 2001 that was given to me by a fireman who was just a hero. And yeah, so... It's a lot of interesting tchotchkes in the background that yeah. you can't see, but there's also books. That that mutton up there is named E.F. Mutton. For older listeners that might remember the reference. <laughs> Since you referenced the ukulele, why is there a ukulele up there? I don't play it, but that was signed by Matt Nathanson. He was an entertainer at one of our Schwab events and gave me that ukulele. When you're not investing, what are you doing? What are your hobbies? I golf, we boat, trail biking, skiing. Hanging with my kids. It used to be traveling, not so much for business, although I I like traveling for business, but uh, there hasn't been as much traveling. (laughs) We've taken some really fabulous trips as a family and 
I'm looking forward to getting back to being able to do that again. All right. So when you can travel, where is that next family vacation going to be? I tell you, we're hard pressed not to go back to Africa, which we did uh, five years ago. And it was just an epic trip, but I've not been to Australia, New Zealand. I would love to go to Scotland and Ireland and play some golf. So those are kind of the top three in the nearish term. <laughs> oh, that's great. You like to travel a lot of really acting, trail riding, skiing. What's your favorite guilty pleasure that's not heavy activity? Eating French fries. (laughs) If somebody said you could have one food the rest of your life and nothing else, that would be what I would pick. Assuming prepared well, not just any old. And what are your favorite French fries? I used to say McDonald's, but in the summer I live on the island of Nantucket and there is a phenomenal restaurant actually going tonight with some friends that are in from out of town called Lola. Lola 41, 41 being the coordinates of where Nantucket is, their truffle fries are, and they come in a giant thing. It's for table sharing, and I could, in one sitting, devour the entire thing. Oh, man. We'll uh, we'll stop it there, because maybe I need need to go out and get some French fries. uh, You've made me hungry. Yeah, your mouth is watering now. (laughs) (laughs) This has been absolutely fantastic. Thanks for this, and a lot of great advice and wisdom for many, many years. Oh, thank you. How many years on, on the Wall Street has it been? So it is 35. 35 years. 35. Thank, thank you 35. so much for My this. My pleasure. This was fun. And thanks for going off into fun tangents. It's a treat to uh, be able to talk about French fries and not just the stock market. <laughs> <laughs> if you are interested in more information on the topic, please go to our website where we will have a list of relevant FEG publications. And don't forget to subscribe to our communications at www.feg.com backslash subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Please keep in mind that this information is intended to be general education that needs to be framed within the unique risk and return objectives of each client. Therefore, nobody should consider these FEG recommendations. This podcast was prepared by FEG. Neither the information nor any opinion expressed in this podcast constitutes an offer or an invitation to make an offer to buy or sell any securities. The views or opinions expressed by guest speakers are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FEG.